Well, we are at session seven on the doctrine of Scripture in the School of Theology. And a welcome to everyone. Let's open up with a word of prayer. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we thank you for your word that's true and sure. It is a guide to our path. You light our way. Uh, You teach us true, eternal things about yourself and our need of your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that your word is reliable uh, to the uttermost. And so we ask this evening as we think about its full inspiration that you would aid us, uh, that your Holy Spirit would work in our hearts and minds, help us to see and hear and understand what greater confidence we should have uh, in that word that you have given through your prophets and apostles. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, we have been looking together at uh, the doctrine of Scripture, and particularly the doctrine of Revelation. It flows from the doctrine of Revelation, God speaking to us generally through nature, and then specially and specifically through his prophets and apostles of old. He, he gives visions, he gives dreams, uh, he uh, speaks to his prophets and speaks through them to his people, and we have begun to look at the different kinds of uh, process that are involved in the inspiration of Scripture. Uh, we noted three major chair passages, 2 Timothy 3.16 and 2 Peter 1.19 and John 10.35, uh, which taught us that the text is God-breathed. Uh, and then secondly, that God is the primary author who carries along the human authors, the prophets of old. And then thirdly, that the product uh, cannot be broken, that the scriptures, uh, the text, cannot be broken. It is indeed true truth. Uh, so true that Jesus is uh, in his uh, preaching and teaching and in his uh, dialogue back and forth with the Pharisees and Sadducees, reasons from even uh, slight grammatical facets of the text of Scripture. Uh, we also looked at the, the fact that inspiration is organic, uh, that because uh, it's from God uh, but also through man, that uh, therefore there are human aspects and elements that we should not only not be embarrassed by and not ignore, but we should glory in. Uh, The fact that uh, sometimes God used dictation uh, and the human authors wrote precisely uh, word for word what he spoke to them or gave to them. Uh, And then secondly, that the writers uh, spoke more than they themselves perhaps even understood. But all the way through, it's both divine and human, fully divine and fully human, and no uh, conflict uh, between the two. The Bible's a human book because of its organic inspiration, and there are also ordinary historiographic methods that were used. We pointed, for example, to the composition of the Gospel according to Luke, where he did a thorough study of uh, uh, the primary uh, actors and the primary materials. Uh, We noted, thirdly, that there were parallels to secular sources in language, phraseology, and teaching, and that individual authors can make or do make a very individual contribution in vocabulary and style and emphasis. Uh, so the emphasis of John is different than the emphasis of Matthew, which is different than the emphasis of Moses, which is different than the emphasis of Jeremiah. And there's development within the thought of particular authors. We can study the Gospel of John and the Epistles of John and the Apocalypse of John and the Book of Revelation, and we can see development of thought or, of course, Across the uh, Pauline corpus of epistles, the same thing is true. And that in understood in a way that uh, is proper, biblical criticism is therefore 
uh, okay. That is, that we can begin to study the Bible and see uh, source, source materials behind it and source criticism. We can look at uh, early oral sources and form criticism. We can do a structural analysis and structural criticism. Uh, these kinds of analyses uh, are not fundamentally incompatible with the inspiration of the text of Scripture and its entire inerrancy. There are liberal scholars who develop uh, biblical criticism in a way that is caustic and contradicts biblical inspiration, but that's not necessarily the case. Well, this evening we come to another truth about inspiration, which is that it's plenary, or inspiration is full. I'm, I'm confused, I think. Writers were not always inspired? The writers of the of the Bible? No, I don't believe I said that. They weren't writing the Bible, they weren't. Certainly it's true, when they weren't writing the Bible, they weren't inspired, but the Lord carries them along in the time of inspiration. Uh, we're talking about plenary inspiration. That is that um, inspiration is full. It's not that the Bible is kind of half-inspired or part-inspired. It's fully inspired. Uh, this word plenary is one that uh, uh, is a little elusive in American English in the 21st century. Uh, the place where it's used uh, more frequently than any other that I've ever run into is in uh, uh, General Assembly minutes. Uh, for example, in, the, in Scotland... Uh, uh, we're coming up soon on the month of May, and if in May you go to Scotland to the Royal Mile, there's a certain segment of the mile where the Church of Scotland General Assembly meets on one side of the street, and the Free Church of Scotland, free of government control, meets on the other side of the street, and the Queen's Regent will pass between the two during one of their uh, plenary sessions. Uh, and by plenary, just the word full is what is meant, that it's a full session, uh, that uh, they'll take up that full segment of the day and that all of the uh, delegates will be seated and they will all have access to a microphone to speak and do business uh, as it's appropriate. It's a full sitting of the assembly rather than just a, a bare-bones sitting of, say, the commission of assembly. Everyone's there and they're all doing their business. In the same way, that word plenary simply means full uh, with regard to inspiration. That inspiration is full. It's not a not a partial inspiration, not an iterative inspiration like it happens sometimes and not other times when the Bible was being written. Uh, the whole of the text is fully inspired. And so that means that all of the Bible is inspired, even though uh, grammar and uh, may not always be uh, precisely what we wish they might be. You know, uh, there is a, uh, a pecking order in society uh, if you uh, speak the Queen's English, you're at a certain point on that pecking order. And if you don't speak the Queen's English, you're at another point. But uh, especially in an English classroom where you're being graded. Uh, but at the end of the day, those are conventions of men. Uh, they are not uh, issues of truth per se. And so you can have two different uh, persons. One who says, um, I am going to the store. And the other one can be uh, a little bit more Yoda-like and say, Mm, I, to the store go. And uh, it's not that one is right and the other is wrong. They both communicate. One is more the queen's grammar than the other, but they're both uh, uh, ways of communicating. And both of those, if, you're, if they're both going to the store, are entirely accurate statements. And so uh, when you come up on the apostle John, you get a very 
uh, well-educated, a very orderly kind of argument in prose. The same thing from uh, the Apostle Paul. He's an excellent writer and speaker. You can tell that by uh, the way the Emanuenses were writing down the epistles that he was dictating to them. Uh, but when you go to the Petrine epistles, the writings of the Apostle Peter, uh, there you're no longer in a great hall of learning or in a uh, well-educated rabbi's um, uh, classroom. Uh, you're sort of hanging out at the pier, and uh, the fishing boats are down there, and there's a certain smell present, and uh, that's fine. It was a very honorable profession that Peter was in. Uh, but Peter learned uh, to uh, write and to speak in a way that was appropriate to his, uh, his upbringing and setting. And there's, there's nothing to be ashamed of. It's not that John's text is inspired and therefore the grammar is perfect and, and Peter's text was not inspired because the grammar is not always perfect. Grammar and style are not absolutes. They are human conventions. And so you still have full inspiration even though the text... Uh, in its grammar and style, is not always great. And this, this assertion of the plenary or full inspiration of the text applies to the original. It applies to uh, the text of the book of Romans that the Apostle Paul was pinning. It applies to uh, the originally composed gospel uh, of Matthew. It doesn't apply uh, to texts as they were copied later uh, they were not always uh, uh, guaranteed by God to be kept uh, from error. Uh, the originals are in a very unique position, and the copies that we have give us access to that original, but we have to keep in mind the uniqueness, the sui generis status of the original, and it's the original uh, which is fully inspired. I can take a manuscript that you have written by hand, and then I can copy it back over, and I can insert the little word not in some of your sentences. And I can uh, take something which is true and make it untrue just by the uh, intentionalness of insertion uh, of that uh, little three-letter word. And in so doing, the copy is not any longer a correct and fully accurate rendition of the original. But if we have a lot of different people copy your original, uh, then we can, uh, we can see by the uh, scientific study uh, where someone made a mistake in copying versus where they didn't. And so the fullness of inspiration applies to the original, and then the copies have to be analyzed and judged uh, based upon uh, the context in which uh, they were produced. Uh, the writers themselves were not always inspired. That is, not always through their life were they inspired, and not necessarily uh, any time they took up a pen. Uh, the Apostle Peter, for example, was re uh, confronted and rebu rebuked by, Matt, uh, by Paul uh, for his uh, uh, moral and spiritual and theological cowardice in caving in to the Judaizers and refusing to uh, have table fellowship with Gentile believers in Christ. Uh, there are occasions on which apostles can be wrong about things, but while they're writing inspired scripture, the product which is inspired, the product which is inerrant, uh, they are being fully uh, inspired at that point while they're writing. And so uh, plenary inspiration implies for the text of the Scripture inerrancy. Uh, that is, that it's without error. There's no part of it that is erroneous or leads us astray uh, fundamentally or is wrong. What is the proof of the Bible's inerrancy? Well, the proof of its inerrancy is along several lines. The, the most fundamental point is that the Bible is, is God-breathed. 
that God himself inspires the text, and it is his activity which produces a text which is inspired. Again, by inspiration, we're not talking about a human emotional state. We're talking about God having breathed out the text through his holy prophets and apostles of old. Uh, The second thing we see in the Bible uh, uh, as a proof of its inerrancy is the fact that the Bible reaches out and touches and corrects uh, so many different areas of life and facets of religious devotion and obedience. But never once do you have uh, Jesus or the apostles or the New Testament reading back onto the Old Testament saying, oh, that was a mistake. Oh, that never really was correct. That was a misunderstanding. You don't have the Bible correcting itself. There's a silence with regard to self-criticism when we read the Bible. Uh, It's not that Jeremiah is rebuking and correcting um, the writing, the inspired writing of uh, Moses. It's not that the writing of John is correcting the mistakes made by Matthew. In no sense. Uh, There's a, a, a theological uh, basic harmony uh, that uh, stretches all across the scriptures because of the one divine author. So the Bible's silence with regard to self-criticism is actually a proof of its inerrancy. There are also particular assertions in the scripture. We've seen it already in John 10:35. The scripture cannot be broken. Uh, and this is Jesus' attitude toward the Bible. And so the particular assertions of the scriptures and of our Lord about the text of the Bible uh, implies its inerrancy. Jesus understands and teaches that the Bible is without error, and therefore uh, there is a further proof because of his divinity of its inerrant status. And inerrancy is also the historical position of the church. Um, That sounds uh, uh, like a very uh, high and lofty thing to say. Uh, It may uh, sound to some like a stretch, but uh, the reality is, is that down through the ages, the Bible, the church's attitude toward the scripture has been one of submission and one of acceptance. Uh, that is the position of the, and has been the position of the Christian faith uh, up until about uh, the middle of the 19th century when critical analyses within the church uh, began uh, to arise as the church departed from the true Christian faith and got certain portions of it got wrapped up in theological liberalism. Um, I had a question from my uh, son about uh, European history and and the development of thought uh, the other evening, and it was uh, a questioning of me about when the departure began to happen uh, uh, against uh, uh, Orthodox evangelical Christianity. And and really the the beginning uh, of the 19th century is the place where you begin to see that departure begin to uh, uh, take up some steam in different quarters of the church. There was a great Copernican shift away from the objective reality of theology and the objective reality of God, shifting to a subjective posture, that God may not objectively exist or we may not be able to prove that he objectively exists to the satisfaction of academics, but that he can exist in our hearts or we can know something of his existence because of his impact upon the way we think and the way we feel particularly. Um, Friedrich Schleiermacher and uh, Wilhelm Hermann in Germany uh, helped lead this kind of a movement. You, you hear it uh, uh, where, they, where they claim that uh, Jesus may not be risen from the dead, the tomb may be full of his bones, but he's risen in my heart is the kind of argument that they would make. So it's really uh, in theological liberalism and skepticism that an undermining 
uh, denial of the Bible's accuracy and therefore inerrancy first begins to crop up in the church. Uh, there is a mediating figure in the 20th century I want to mention in passing, and that's Karl Barth. Uh, he um, was trained under theological liberals in Germany and then tried to find a, an intellectually respectable position uh, which accepted the text of the Bible, though not necessarily always accepting its historical accuracy at every point. He was trying to retain the authority of Scripture without uh, necessarily accepting its inerrancy uh, in all detail. And so he developed his theology of paradox, stressing that the Bible, as we read it, especially as it's preached, becomes the Word of God to us rather than being the Word of God. And this is a, this is a wholly uh, innovative kind of idea. So before the 19th century, you didn't have this kind of thinking. The end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th is when you begin having this uh, undermining of the Bible and some sort of uh, acceptance of its supposed failings, errors, mistakes, and therefore humanness. And our response to that as evangelical believers is to say, hold it, uh, let's have a look back at the text. Uh, let's look one by one at, at these concerns or errors that you're raising. And usually what's happened is, is they're taking some secular authority and using it to trump the Bible uh, rather than taking the Bible on its own uh, basis objectively. I, I suspect, well, it's not all that difficult to read. Um, there, is, there is an occasion where one... Uh, Bardian uh, theologian has, so the only one that I know of really uh, with any uh, strong effort, has attempted to steal the word inerrancy from us. Uh, you know, evangelicals used to say they believed in biblical authority. And then the neo-Orthodox folks tended to take that word away from us and claim that too. So we moved on to infallibility. and They sort of began to take that one from us. And so we moved on to inerrancy as a way to emphasize the fact that the Bible is wholly true. And uh, we now have a theologian... Uh, uh, Professor T.F. Torrance, who argues that uh, the Bible's inerrancy uh, is um, found not in its uh, static concept of verbal inerrancy or infallibility, but uh, that the Holy Spirit uses the text in an infallible way or an inerrant way. And, and this is to uh, contradict, it's to subjectivize, to contradict the fact that it's the, the claim of the church has always been that the text of the Bible itself is inerrant, not that God uses a fallible text in an infallible way. Uh, that's uh, a bit of a contradiction in itself. Yes, we have a question. Yes, yes. Uh, the question was, uh, uh, is this the idea that G.I. Williamson deals with when he says that there are those who assert that the text of the Bible is not inerrant or true, but that somehow God uh, uh, turns it into such in our own hearts and in our own minds as we read it. Yes, that's, that's a nice approximation of a, of, a, of a broad movement called neo-orthodoxy. They're not orthodox. They're, they're new orthodox, and they're new in that they've made a giant concession about the fallibility of the Bible to the liberal scholars under whom they uh, themselves were raised and taught. Yeah, we, in, in many of our mainline churches today, the most, uh, um, the most conservative folks you'll find are neo-Orthodox folks who, who will not accept the historicity of the Bible across the board, but will limit it to uh, uh, an infallibility or an inerrancy with regard to the theology that it teaches. But uh, that, that raises a host of problems because the theology of the Bible is drawn from, in the New Testament, as it's deriving theology, it's deriving it from the history of the Old Testament.
uh, whether it be the history of Adam and Eve or the history of the nation of Israel, because it's redemptive history. So you can't drive a wedge between these things. You can't have your cake and eat it too. You're either committed to the authority and inerrancy of the text or, or uh, not at all. Another question. Yes? Mm-hmm. We we know it's not the original text. Mm-hmm. So we understand that it could actually have an error. There could be a typo or other things. Mm-hmm. Is the Holy Spirit involved? In, is when I when I first heard that statement, I said, "Oh, they're bridging between our best effort and what we know to be infallible. The Holy Spirit's going to protect us from a typo." Is, is there any thought? I mean, what if that's not what that was speaking to? What would yeah, I, I, think, I think it's fair to say um, that neo-Orthodox scholars are not dealing with typos and they're not dealing with um, quibbles or differences of opinion over how to translate something from Hebrew or Greek into English. What they're dealing with are wholesale, what they view as wholesale fundamental um, historical mistakes. Uh, for example... Um, it's very difficult to find a mainline academic theologian in Europe who hold, at a major university who holds to uh, a biblical view of creation. They'll strip it down to the idea that, that God created or that creation can be described in terms of God or in terms of six days. But at the end of the day, they don't believe in, in any kind of historic six-calendar-day creation. And uh, with regard to miracles and other things... Uh, uh, great skepticism. With regard to resurrection from the dead, great skepticism. Uh, with regard to the virgin birth, it would be laughed you know, out of the hall as a, as a fable that teaches a story, a myth, that teaches a nice lesson to us, but it's not grounded in real actual events. Some of the most clever theologians are the ones who talk about the myth. They talk about the text. And you sit there wondering, okay, does he mean this as a myth or does he mean as a historical event? And the really clever ones make it almost impossible for you to tell whether they believe in the historicity or not. And people will write books. Karl Barth did believe in the resurrection. Others will write a book saying Karl Barth did not believe in the resurrection. Karl Barth did believe in the virgin birth. Others will say Karl Barth did not believe in the virgin birth. And they make a lot of money publishing these books. Um, yeah, it's, it's those kinds of fundamental historical differences that are in a completely different ballpark than questions of typos and printer's errors. Um, certainly the, the ESV volume or the NSV volume that we have sitting in our laps is an English translation, and it's drawn from um, the best texts of the day we have that are copies of copies of the originals. And uh, there is a is an objective scientific basis on which we can have every reasonable confidence that those um, manuscripts that we have, because there's so many of them and we can do comparative analysis, that the manuscripts give us access to the original text and that the original text is what we're asserting is, is God-breathed or inspired. Um, if there is a printer's error, can the Holy Spirit uh, uh, keep us from... Uh, making too much of that in him a sin. Yes, uh, on a couple of levels. One is, is that if there's a printer's error in the, in, the, in the physical published English translation of the Bible, then uh, there's so much truth there on the same subject that the, that the, that the typo uh, causes a problem with, that there would be a, 
a self-correcting mechanism. Uh, but you also have the, the good work of the Holy Spirit simply in providence, in keeping the church hemmed in. Um, oh, I'm having difficulty here. Bob, can you remind me? There's um, the printing uh, of the English Bible uh, post-Reformation times in time in which my memory is they left out the word not on the seventh commandment. Yeah, thou shalt commit adultery. The typo, the typo was they forgot the word not. The wicked Bible, yes. They needed, you know, see, this is the day when they were having to typeset every word, every letter by hand. And somebody just got tired and they left, they skipped a word. I don't think there's any evidence that it was intentional. I think it was a mistake. There seems to be great horror that it happened. So they, they're hard to find because they collected them and destroyed most of them. Yes. So that would, that would be an example where there are plenty of other verses that teach us that there was a little tension there in the text, a little problem. Oh, good question. All right. Um, inspiration is plenary, uh, and that means that, that we have something at stake with regard to inerrancy. Uh, now, hear me carefully on this point. It is not that uh, the doctrine of inerrancy is the utterly necessary doctrine for salvation. I am not arguing that someone who did not embrace the doctrine of plenary verbal inspiration and consequent inerrancy is uh, damned to hell. I'm not saying that. I am saying they're making a very important mistake, a very profound mistake, that if they work it out consistently, is going to lead to all sorts of problems in every area of doctrine. But the reality is, is that it's not the essence of the faith. Um, but if you work it out in consistently, a denial of the Bible's inerrancy and consequence and inspiration uh, then you really are doing a great uh, disservice to the apostles and the prophets, and you're undermining their credibility. And you're even undermining the credibility of Jesus if you deny the plenary inspiration and consequent, consequence, consequent inerrancy because Jesus himself handles the text. And, and in his uh, arguing the Pharisees and Sadducees and teaching of his disciples and his preaching, reasons from it being uh, an inspired and therefore inerrant text. And so there are, there are some fairly uh, important fellows that you're insulting if you don't uh, embrace inerrancy. But it doesn't mean that someone will uh, necessarily go to hell uh, with regard to that rejection. That's an important thing for us to remember as evangelicals because sometimes we get so upset about certain theological issues that it's almost as if what we're doing is damning the other person. And we need to, to recognize that uh, sometimes folks... Uh, uh, have uh, uh, an error in their theological thinking because of uh, some wrong thing that they've been taught down through the years. Uh, I can remember a theological seminary that will grow, go remain nameless and a theological college, both in the Presbyterian church, uh, old denomination that I grew up in, and, and there were certain days in which we were all supposed to go see that seminary and that college. And they'd put us all in a in a bus and they'd cart us over to the seminary or to the college, and we'd run around campus, and there'd be little lectures and little giveaways. And, and now that I look back on it, I realize that a lot of the lectures were denials of the uh, inerrancy and inspiration of the Bible. And there were a lot of good kids there and even good youth leaders who had no idea. They really, we just didn't understand the bad things that we were being taught uh, until we began to see some of the implications of it in, in church life. I remember the day as a, as a teen when I first discovered that... Uh, 
the deity of Jesus Christ was being denied in my denomination openly. And that uh, there were presbyteries that were saying that was okay. You didn't have to believe in the deity of Christ. And I can remember the shock that was. Um, People have false ideas. Of course, if you reject the, the deity of the Father or the Son of the Holy Spirit, then then really there's nothing of Christian truth in you. Uh, but if you are confused about the textual accuracy of the Bible with regard to history or, or other matters to which it speaks, uh, then that's an area that may not work itself out in your own thinking uh, into a contradiction of the rest of the Christian faith necessarily. Um, folks that, that are weak-minded when it comes to working out theology, sometimes that's a blessing because it keeps them from going into deeper and deeper and deeper deeper error if they've been fed a false line. So uh, uh, inerrancy is not the utterly necessary doctrine, but it is a very important one. A lot is at stake. It's, it's I think, a true thing to say that in our own day that uh, to accept a denial of inspiration and of consequent inerrancy means that almost any ethical Error is now an open possibility. I, I can remember as a child some of us uh, uh, arguing back and forth about uh, this horrible thing we were beginning to hear about called abortion and that there was no way that this should be allowed. And, and I remember someone saying, well, you know, after, after abortion on one end of life, it'll be euthanasia on the other end of life. And we didn't know how to spell euthanasia, much, really, much less really have much of an existential grasp of it. But the reality is, is that it, it's just unthinkable. Uh, many of the ethical positions that are adopted today. We, we find ourselves on the brink of uh, uh, the nation accepting and condoning on some level legally uh, homosexual marriage, which is just a contradiction in terms, biblically speaking. And um, uh, these kinds of ideas are possible uh, among Christians because they have first, some have first denied the inerrancy and the uh, inspiration of the Bible. If you, if you have a Bible that is uh, Swiss cheese and full of a lot of holes, then uh, it becomes a nice, interesting intellectual game as to where the holes and the errors might be. And uh, there's no ethical behavior that you can't justify on that basis. Um, behind uh, denial of inerrancy also uh, uh, oftentimes exists uh, an argument that many make uh, that implies to make an error is to be human. To err is human. To forgive divine, we hear. But uh, to err is not to be human. Uh, I can name a few folks that uh, didn't err, and yet they were fully human. Do you remember your first father, Adam, in the garden before he fell? Your first mother, Eve, in the garden before she fell. They were fully human. Arguably, they were a little bit more human than we are because <laughs> we're of a fallen estate. Uh, and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ never once sinned, never told a lie, uh, always spoke the truth. Uh, he believed in inerrancy, and he himself was inerrant. And as he spoke the word of God, it was the inerrant word of God, but that didn't make him any less human. Uh, the Holy Spirit is able to superintend and to protect apostles and prophets and even sinners like you and me from uh, making error uh, under inspiration. Uh, Jesus, of course, uh, was unfallen uh, and was always uh, holy and righteous, and therefore everything he said uh, was in consonant with his heavenly Father and true and without error. Uh, sometimes people will say that there are parts of the Bible that are revelatory and other parts that are non-revelatory, that the Bible uh, 
contains kind of red verses that are revelatory and, and those black verses that are not so revelatory. And, and again, this is just to deny the full or plenary nature of inspiration. All right, the, all right, the, the question is, is there a difference or what difference would we make between those who on the one hand say that the Bible is inerrant uh, completely, but yet would have differences of opinion over what books belong in the Bible? Can, this is the canon question. And the canon question is a serious and important one, uh, and it, uh, it really involves a, an examination of the text in question uh, and a, a searching, a looking for, an analysis of that text to see whether it bears the marks of inspiration. And uh, uh, so it is, yes, it is possible uh, to have someone who would hold to the Bible being uh, completely inerrant, but yet have a disagreement over certain books. Let me give you an example. At one point in his life, uh, uh, Luther, who by Calvin was called the great apostle, <laughs> uh, Luther out of frustration, tore the book of James out of his uh, Bible and uh, threw it into the river uh, because he, could, he found himself very frustrated trying to reconcile James's statements about salvation uh, versus Paul's statements about salvation uh, by grace through faith versus salvation and reference to works. And I, I, think, it's, I think it's fair to say now in the wake of the resurrection that that uh, Reformed theologians feel no tension over that, and Lutheran, Luther the, Lutheran theologians feel less tension than even Reformed do over that. But uh, everybody recognizes that Dr. Luther got a little upset. Uh, and so he began to doubt the inspiration of that book and uh, uh, even gave it kind of secondary status, almost like the Apocrypha uh, in some circles. So, yes, it's possible to have a disagreement over whether a text, for example, is... Um, Christ-honoring and in line with other scriptures. Uh, it's possible to have a, a, a healthy debate over whether a book um, has uh, apostolic uh, authorship or authentication uh, that has been accepted uh, from that period forward, or whether a book has found a spiritually fruitful use within the church by the work of the Holy Spirit applying uh, that work to people's consciences uh, through reading and preaching and teaching. Uh, from that point forward, those basic tests of canonicity are something that you could have a disagreement over with regard to a particular book or, or portion of a book. Um, and you get this in, in uh, also mixed with some lower critical things. For example, in the Gospel of John, you have the story of the um, woman caught in adultery. And uh, that text is found in John 8. It's found as a separate scrap, and it's also found... Uh, embedded in the book of Matthew in some manuscripts. And so it's, it, it, it almost looks like a page. I mean, it, they weren't using pages. They were using uh, scrolls. But uh, it almost looks like a page that fell out of the book, you know, and got uh, stuck in at various places. You have the same thing with regard to Second and Third John uh, as uh, epistles. And in those cases, the most, most likely the source of disagreement is over uh, is caused by the fact that they're so short they were just append, uh, just a, uh, added as an appendix uh, to First John, uh, just a kind of a, a little addendum at the end, and therefore they weren't numbered as a separate scroll or specified as a separate scroll, scroll in some places. So yes, that's possible. This, this is the irony: is that um, uh, in a secularized age like in, in which we live today, a postmodern kind of age, uh, Protestants who hold to the doctrine of inerrancy 
on college campuses find uh, that their best allies are actually Roman Catholics, good conservative traditional Roman Catholics who also believe in the inspiration and therefore the authority of the text, although we disagree over uh, how to understand that authority and exercise it. Sometimes I think the reason Providence is allowing the secularization of society is to make us get along whether we like it or not. <laughs> there, there is a, uh, the point that was made just now was that uh, uh, in secularism, uh, there is a large lesson for us to learn how to get along with each other in Christian circles, and that indeed is true. Um, I can remember being in Oxford at the 13th Annual International Conference on Patristic Studies and having a, having a grand time as sort of the token, the token Protestant in the room with a whole group of uh, Jesuit theologians interested in an obscure aspect of uh, early church Christology. And uh, there was great kinship, you know, in, in uh, trying to trace out whether orthodoxy had been held by a particular author or not. All right, we um, have just a couple of more minutes. Let me, let me wrap up uh, uh, on objections to inerrancy. Uh, the Bible's literary form uh, oftentimes is pointed to as a reason why um, the Bible uh, could just not at all be inerrant. Uh, that is that uh, the use of saga or myth or, or other uh, elements uh, of literary form uh, would somehow make the Bible uh, less than inerrant. Sometimes people, for example, will point to, to parables and say, oh, well, these stories are not true. They're works of fiction, and therefore the Bible is not inerrant. And uh, I, it's difficult for me to respond to that kind of objection because I think it's just so illogical. Um, we use stories, parables, little lessons uh, in teaching important things with no pretense that those stories are are completely or historically true, uh, and that's a perfectly fine thing to do. When the Bible's teaching history, it makes it fairly clear by the kind of, of language and structure and emphasis. And um, uh, when Jesus is teaching a parable, he'll say something like this. He'll say, the kingdom of God is like, and uh, it's a formulaic opening to a, uh, a short illustration or a parable. Uh, sometimes people will point to uh, the Bible, the New Testament's quoting of the Old Testament translation, Greek translation from Hebrew to Greek, the Septuagint, as uh, proof uh, that the Bible is not inerrant. And again, uh, using a translation of a text rather than quoting Hebrew uh, in the middle of a Greek text is, uh, is not a fault or a problem. Uh, you can use the stock translation of the day and still it will be fine uh, and won't undermine the inerrancy of the text. Uh, sometimes people will point to um, tension between parallel sayings in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so you'll have a longer statement quoted by Luke and a very short one by Mark and uh, by Matthew, something that is a little bit different emphasis. And again, uh, there's no error involved in that per se necessarily. Um, if, uh, uh, if we looked at the notes that you're taking right now on what I'm saying, I think we would find a little bit different uh, uh, style and emphasis and highlighting, and that doesn't mean that uh, uh, any one is necessarily wrong. They can all be shedding um, uh, light in a different way on what and be completely accurate to what uh, was originally said. Uh, the Bible contradicts uh, some of the claims of modern science, and people will point to this as being uh, some objection against inerrancy. And again, I, uh, usually this is being said with regard to either miracles in general or particularly with regard 
uh, to the origin uh, or question of origins, the origin of man or the origin of the universe. And uh, I would point out that, uh, uh, that God's creation from nothing uh, of the created order that we enjoy now is something that man will never fully uh, be able to understand because it, it involves a miracle and we cannot reason uh, underneath and behind miracles. So uh, the scriptures give us a, an accurate, uh, short, tantalizing summary that in six days God created and uh, we accept it uh, as the inspired word of God. Uh, there is a, a claim sometimes that 1 Corinthians 7.12 teaches that the Bible is not inerrant. And this is where the Apostle Paul is giving ethical teaching on marriage and on family relationships. And he says that uh, uh, not I say but the Lord or not the Lord but I say. And uh, these are just different ways in which he's emphasizing uh, the basis on which his ethical command as an apostle is given, whether it's something that Jesus taught during his earthly ministry or whether it's something the Apostle Paul himself has under inspiration from the Holy Spirit. And then uh, finally, you'll get uh, a fairly strong emphasis on degrees of inspiration uh, in more conservative uh, mainline circles uh, where uh, some portions of the Bible are just more inerrant or more inspired and therefore more accurate than others. Uh, usually it's statements about God being loved. Those are, those are very uh, reliable and statements about judgment and Sodom and Gomorrah, we just can't be sure about those at all um, because they just don't sound like what I want God to be like. Uh, These are projections of man back upon the text uh, rather than a submission to God uh, in his word. Well, let's take a break, and uh, we will uh, come back just in a moment. Well, it's good to see you all again. We're going to talk tonight about uh, the next couple of chapters, chapters 13 and 14 in Jeffrey's book on redemption and justification. And when you think about the concepts of redemption and justification, they really do kind of fly in the face of human logic or human reason. There's no good reason for these things from sort of a worldly point of view. Uh, I'll talk about that more later, but, um, but they kind of in the sort of the grand sort of scope of Christian theology, to me, they jump out at me. They, they, they sort of stand out as because they are so surprising, so unexpected in a certain sense. Uh, God did not need to do these things, and yet he did. And there's something about the human mind that just kind of works this way. We tend to remember the unexpected. Like, you know, what happens ordinarily in our lives does not impress us very much. But when unexpected things happen, those kind of stick with us. And I, was, I encountered this today. I, I came across a simple fact I'm going to share with you right now. Kangaroos cannot, are physically incapable of jumping backwards. Well, they got, there's lots of reasons. I'm not going to go into why. I don't, even, I don't fully understand why, but they can't. And so um, there's a, I say that there's a reasonable chance that of all the things I say tonight, a week or two from now, the only part you'll remember is, oh, yeah, kangaroos can't jump backwards. <laughs> and you might even forget where you heard that, but someday you will find yourself in the outback and your friend is being attacked by a kangaroo and you'll say, get behind him. <laughs> you won't remember why, but it works. I don't know what that has to do with redemption and justification, except they too are kind of unexpected, and so I want to talk about that a little bit. Uh, you know, I have a contractual obligation to review, and so I will just mention uh, in passing 
that the last couple of chapters we looked at here from Jeffrey had to do with first uh, repentance and faith. And uh, repentance, of course, meaning sort of turning away, right? Turning literally means to turn away from, to turn away from our sin. But it also simultaneously means to turn to God. Actually, Jeffrey makes kind of a big point of this. You can't do one without the other. You can't simply turn away from sin, but not to God. You can't turn to God without turning from your sin. These things are wrapped up together. They're essential together. Uh, repentance, though, and faith are, are intimately linked, he says. Uh, and faith, of course, when we think of faith, we're not talking about sort of mere sort of intellectual assent to principles. Uh, I, I mentioned this. I hope you don't take offense. Uh, you get this, I think, in Presbyterian circles sometimes. If I sort of, if I just in my mind uh, say yes to the correct things, I'm, I'm in. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm one of them. Uh, we are kind of, a, in a sense, kind of an intellectual denomination in a certain sense. Uh, but that's not really what the Bible means by faith, right? It has to do with, with sort of uh, completely uh, gripping and, and holding to uh, the, what, what God teaches us. So that's, um, that's chapter 11. I'm sorry about the popping. Um, I try not to pop, but I can't always control myself. Chapter 12 then had to do with, uh, what, with what Jeffrey calls reconciliation. And uh, again, this is sort of one of those sort of surprising sort of outcomes we were reminded last time that indeed in our fallen state we are we've talked about before we are dead in our sins but but not only are we dead in our sins we are literally hostile towards god remember we talked about this in the context of atheism atheists really seem to hate hate god they don't believe he exists but they hate him kind of curious thing uh it's an indication of where we stand when we are not elect, when we are not chosen, when we are rejecting God, we hate him. We are hostile towards him. And yet, in the face of that hostility, not because we did something good, but while we are hating him and hostile towards him, God makes it possible for us to be redeemed, for us to be saved. Uh, And that's where this notion of reconciliation comes from. God reconciles us to himself not because of anything we do, not because of any indication that we sought reconciliation, but because he loves us enough and this is his will to do. So there is kind of a, I'm not going to deal with this much tonight. Uh, we'll talk about this maybe in a, in a couple of weeks. But there is a logic to Jeffrey's book here. You know, why do these, this isn't just sort of a random association of interesting theological terms. So when he talks about uh, repentance and faith, and reconciliation, and then tonight, redemption and justification. There is kind of an order or a logic to it. We'll try to, after we kind of get through this a little bit more, we'll try to sort of go back and maybe re, uh, reconstruct the logic of, of these, these chapters that we're looking at here. Uh, but this is not, I don't, just keep that in the back of your minds. This is not a random presentation. These really do kind of, in a sense, build upon one another. So when we think about repentance and faith and reconciliation, it probably makes some sense to move into a discussion, as we will tonight, on redemption or as he says here in, his, uh, in the subtitle to his chapter, set free from the bondage of sin. We've talked about it before, uh, but I, I'll, I'll say it one more time again tonight. One of the most common images in Scripture, especially the New Testament, to describe our fallen state is the state of death. We are dead in our sins. But another common illustration or another way that the Bible uses to describe our fallen state is the state of servitude or slavery, right? We are slaves to sin, uh, just a couple of verses easily, quickly come to mind. There's many, many more, but I, I was thinking of, uh, and actually Jeffrey points it out, uh, Romans 6, uh, verse 20. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free regard to righteousness. 
so Paul frequently has recourse to this notion of being slaves to sin. Uh, here's an uh, example from Peter, 2 Peter 2. Uh, you don't have to follow along here. Just read these to you. Uh, Peter, so understand, this is not Paul. This is Peter. They promise, fr- they promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever, I love this next sentence, for whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved. So uh, one really is, as Peter says, one is a slave, slave to what? Slave to sin. Given this um, concept of slave, slavery to sin, mm-hmm. what does that say to people who, who claim we have a free will? Well, this is, <laughs> I, love the, uh, I love the way that Augustine put it. Augustine said, yes, you have a free will. You are free to sin in any manner you choose. Our will is not completely free. There, actually, even on the other side of that, when God redeems us, our will is still not completely free. There are many things I might wish to do, I just cannot do it. Right? If I wish to fly, I'm willing it, I'm not going anywhere. Right? It's my, I, I'm not, my will is not completely free. I cannot exercise, I cannot do things that are not possible for me to do. Right? Uh, I can't think the mind of God as much as I might want to, right? So, in a certain sense, our will is never free under any circumstances. Uh, but certainly in our fallen state, it's not free because we are simply incapable of willing that which is good. It's a capability we do not have. So, no, they're, they're not free. we're never free in that sense. Um, now, now, post-redemption, right, as we can talk about here tonight, on the other side of that, we do become capable of willing forms of good that we weren't capable of before, right? So uh, once, you know, once saved, once justified, yeah, now it is possible for possible, not, not always going to happen, right? I'm still going to sin. I'm still going to sometimes fall back and into sin, uh, but it becomes possible for me to will that which is good. I don't know if that's a... We could talk about your question all night, actually. That's a pretty profound question, but um, I, I hope that helps a little bit. So turn with me. Let's, if you have your Jeffrey book, pull it out. Is Gladys here? Ah, she said she might not. Yeah, she didn't have her book. She maybe just went home. Or maybe she went home to get it. Wouldn't that be neat? <laughs> On page 65, it's the first uh, page of the chapter. See under that little uh, the subheading there, slavery to sin. Listen, listen to this and tell me what... I, I want to know what this means. If man was spiritually free there would be no need of redemption. Pretty simple thing there. What is Jeffrey saying? You could will yourself. Actually, I think you're right, but explain what you mean. Huh? You could just say, I'm going to quit sinning. Yeah, if... if so that would be like saying, I'm going to quit thinking. I don't yeah, give it a shot done. right now, right? Yeah, stop, yeah. right. <clears throat> so, but you're, so you're exactly right. If it were simply a matter of if my will were not bound, right? If I really was free... And so I'm presented with the choice of, of sin or not sin. I could just choose not sin. Right? I'd be free. That's, that's the choice I made. And maybe somebody else makes a different choice. I make mine. You make yours. But that's not the condition that we're in. And so that, uh, that notion of slavery, the, the implication of that is once I'm a slave, I'm not my own person. Right? I'm, I'm, I'm possessed by something else. In this case, I'm, I'm possessed by the, by the corruption of my sin. Exactly. Sin is my master. Right. And, so, and I'm not free, right? So this, I think this all makes sense. I want to come back to that thought in just one second, but another thing that, that Jeffrey says here in this paragraph, he says that sin is a tremendous deceiver. 
in what sense is sin a deceiver? It's kind of a strange thing because we don't think of sin. I mean, a deceiver sounds like it needs to be a person, but sin's not a person. How does sin deceive? <laughs> sure. I, it's, North says, it's okay. Everybody does it, right? You, you kind of, we have ways of kind of convincing ourselves that, that my particular sin is okay or, or I mean, it, it, Exactly. So there's lots of possibilities. One is, yes, everybody's doing it. The other is, it's really not that bad. Another is, of course, um, well, I'm an exception, right? You shouldn't do it, but it's okay if I do it, right? That's different. You and I are quite different, and, you know, you have your problems, but I'm okay, and, right? Lots of ways we go about. It's all sin. It's all wrong, right? But we have ways of kind of, now in that sense, kind of deceiving ourselves. Were you going to add something there? That's right. Fundamentally, isn't that it? I mean, what is sin? It's denying God, right? God has set the parameters. He has set the standards. When we say, no, but I'll do this instead, we're displacing God as though we could do that, right? As though that were possible, we're going to take the role that God should have. We're going to set our own standards. We're going to make our own law. I'm an exception, or it's okay, or it's not as bad as it sounds, or whatever. Lots of ways we could go about that. So if you have your Bibles, this is going to be tough, right? You've got Jeffrey in one hand, you've got the Bible in the other. If you have to get rid of one, get rid of Jeffrey. Turn with me to Romans. We're going to spend a lot of time in Romans. So if you can't find Romans, well, actually, if you can't find Romans, I, I have questions about your salvation. But um, turn to Romans chapter 7. Go to Acts and turn right, exactly. I want to just look at a few verses together. To kind of illustrate what we're talking about here, this notion of, of, of slavery towards sin. See what, what Paul says here in 7 uh, verses 14 and following. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Can you all identify with this? I, every time I read this chapter, I'm like, yeah, that's me, all right. Now, if I want to do what I do not, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. Paul really kind of puts his finger on something very important here. How many times do I sin under the following circumstances? I know it's wrong. I know I shouldn't do it. I know the consequences will be bad. And yet I do it anyway. You see, what Paul's getting at here, right? It's not really what I even want for myself, and yet I do that. I, do, I use this illustration with my students all the time. Um, college students never have this problem, but I will ask them, have you ever, after a night of debauchery, which I don't even want to think about and define for you, wake up the next morning, or maybe the next afternoon, feeling poorly, I'll let you fill in the gaps, and think something like the following, what was I thinking? Why did I do that? I, 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 I used, I, I, it's the sober light of morning. If only that sober light of morning would shine at night, then you wouldn't have these problems. Because then it's, in the sober light of morning, it seems so clear. Oh, I, I shouldn't have done that. Oh, but at the time, it seemed like a great thing. It, it was certainly the choice I made for myself, right? It's so it seems, right? When I'm thinking it through, when I'm, when I'm stepping back, when I'm, as Paul says, when I consider my own will really, 
well, I don't want to do that. Oh, but I do that anyway. I choose the thing which I do. It doesn't even make sense. It's irrational. I do what I don't want to do. Why would you do that? It doesn't even make sense in a certain way. It's because we are slaves. It's because our will really is not free. You think you want this, but you choose that. Or you do want that, but you choose this other thing anyway. That's what a slave does. I mean, let's be honest. That's what Paul is getting at here. And notice, oh, the, back in verse 14, the key word, I am sold under sin. I don't know if you catch that. That's actually kind of, who gets sold? Slaves get sold because they're not their own. It's not an analogy condition. We are sold under sin. We are not our own. We are slaves. It's pretty strong, I understand, but I want you to really see that there. So, again, the topic here is uh, redemption. What does it mean to redeem? Yeah, it literally has to do with payment. Think of the word. Like, like most good words, Jamie, right? It comes from the Latin, right? All the good stuff. <clears throat> the re part you probably recognize, right? It means to kind of do again, right? To, to, to repeat, right? Actually, you see the... This part, the dean part, think of it, um, it actually, if it's the same root that we get other words from. Uh, most of, we don't talk like this in public very often, but uh, if you had a, a life insurance policy, let's say, and um, you had the uh, poor uh, misfortune to actually go ahead and die, uh, your, your estate might receive an indemnity. What's an indemnity? You see the same, the D-E-M, the dem part there. It's a payment. Literally, to redeem is to pay back or to pay off or to pay out. You're literally being bought back. To redeem something is to buy it back. It implies it was sold once. What does Paul say here in Romans 7? We're sold to sin. It was sold once. We're buying it back. Literally, we are being redeemed. That's not a, again, it's not an analogy. It is exactly our condition. All right? Okay, okay all right. All right. I just want to make sure. Do what you have to. It's, it's fine. It's fine. <laughs> Let me ask you, um, what do we contribute to the redemption? It implies that a price is paid, right? What's your part? What's your, how much do you pay? I, I, heard, I heard one pastor put it like this. He says, what we contribute is the sin. Because of that, we, 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 we cause the trouble, uh, but we don't really, we don't have anything to do. We don't add to the redemption. So I want you to think about this for a moment. Maybe this is a little simplistic. I do apologize. Uh, but redemption requires a price. Actually, a word we often use for that, and sometimes certain translations of the Bible will use it. Uh, what's the price we often pay? What's the, how do, what's the word we use for that cost? We often call it a ransom. You've heard that word before, right? A ransom. We often, unfortunately, because of sort of, you know, television, uh, we have a sense a ransom means somebody got kidnapped, we have to pay him out. Well, Yes, but you didn't have to be kidnapped necessarily. You could pay a ransom for a slave, for example. I'll give, I'll give the owner of the slave some money, a ransom, and he, the body is free to go. It's a kind of redemption. So this idea of a ransom or the cost, the, the price that is paid for the liberation of the slave, we call that a ransom. What's the ransom for your sin? What was the cost? What was the, what was the price that was paid? literally, Jesus' life, right? I don't mean, that's all over Scripture. We don't have to necessarily, you can just start flipping around, you'll find a page or two uh, by random. But here's just one example from Ephesians chapter 1. In him, and that him there, in case you're wondering, is Jesus Christ, in him we have redemption through his blood. 
right? If Jesus doesn't shed his blood, we don't get our redemption. The price is literally his life, his blood. I could go on. It's only half the verse, but you get the idea, right? Turn with me here back into Jeffrey. See, I told you, two hands. On page 67, he's dealing with this notion here. You see it, the, the ransom price, the actual cost of our redemption. And near the bottom of the page, he says the following. It was God who made us, and all the rights are his. So the ransom price was paid to satisfy the demands of God's law, which we had violated by our sin. The law demanded that the wage of sin be the death of the sinner. Christ satisfied that demand on behalf of his people when he shed his blood on the cross. He says it several times there. I want to make sure you catch this. Who's the one demanding the payment? You understand, it's God. You might think that, you know, there must be good guys and bad guys, and only bad guys would demand a redemption, right? No, no, no. God's law requires the payment. What's the penalty for sin? Death is the penalty for sin. We sin, what's the cost that has to be paid? A life has to be paid. Now, there'd be nothing unjust, there'd be absolutely nothing wrong if that life were ours. Yours, mine, everybody's. If God said, all right, you sin, your life is forfeit. We couldn't complain about that. We couldn't say it's unjust. I mean, that's what mercy is, right? It doesn't... God substitutes his son. A life gets paid, but it's not ours. And that's a miracle. That's a tremendous grace. On, uh, on page 68, <clears throat> you know how I mentioned before how Jeffrey likes to include some, some questions at the end of each chapter, lest you sort of get tired and nod off. Uh, it's hard to avoid a question, right? Uh, this first one really caught me when I was looking over this chapter. Um, question number one on 68, how did you feel when you first realized you were in slavery to sin? That's kind of an uncomfortable question, isn't it? It's a terribly uncomfortable question, exactly. I don't, there's nothing kind, there's nothing really noble about slavery. It's rather demeaning. I don't even like to, I don't like the word employee. Even that kind of bothers me in my pride a little bit. I certainly don't want to be anybody's slave. That just says it's off-putting. It's harsh language that the Bible uses, but it's not inaccurate, right? I mean, it really does describe our condition. We are slaves. There's all sorts of baggage that goes with the American experience between races, right, and the the institution of slavery that that went on here for centuries. Uh, But this is not by any means a good thing. One thing about that heritage, though, it does remind us vividly what a horrible and negative image that is. To be called a slave, if nothing else, because of our history, we know what slavery is. It ain't pretty. It is not a good thing. It's not even a neutral thing. It's not even a little bad. It's terrible. Nobody wants to be that, right? But that is our condition, and that's the place we find ourselves, absent God and Jesus Christ in our lives. So without that redemption, as Jeffrey says, without that payment, without that buying us back, buying back, we are in a horrible, horrible way. We have another chapter to talk about, but I want to stop there. Any, any questions you want? Anything else we want to talk about in chapter 13 here before we move on? Question with regard to that question. Yes. Um, for myself, I came to know the Lord. I put bad. That was my answer, bad. I felt bad. Yeah. But I was six years old when I came to know the 
there's that point where the thing that I remember the most of mm-hmm. conversion was I was raised Baptist, asking Jesus in my heart, but understanding yeah. that I needed to put my faith and trust in Christ. There wasn't that comprehension about how bad I was that I was a slave to sin. I knew I wanted to spend eternity in heaven before. It may not have been so after yeah. Yeah. The study of scripture and spiritual growth that you understand that prior to that I was a slave to sin. I am now free from that, although I live in this flesh. So I may have felt bad, but I, there was that joy in knowing mm-hmm. That, mm-hmm. that Christ took care of that. So I think there, I mean, there's a difference in at the point where that conversion happens as far as. Yeah. No. I think we can go further than that. That's that's an ongoing. That doesn't just that doesn't just stop. It doesn't happen one time when you're six or twenty six or fifty six. It goes on the rest of one's life. It's part of sanctification. When I say it, I mean understanding the depths of our depravity. I can assure you, nobody in this room right now understands the depths of your own depravity. So maybe at age six, did you have the complete sort of picture in your mind that Jeffrey's painting? Well, probably not. But you still don't have, don't take this the wrong way, you still, I, we still don't have the full understanding of the depth of our sin. So it's not a matter of, you know, boy, if only I knew more or, you know, uh, is, is, certainly is your salvation doubtful because you didn't completely understand your Nobody completely understands their sin. We, we can only begin to imagine how perfectly righteous God is. And then once you get that, right, how far away from that we are, we don't fully grasp that. But you're right, as we do, as we, as, as we go through that process, which we'll see in a couple of weeks, of sanctification, and begin maybe to kind of get a better picture of who God is. And that it goes on all of our lives, right? We, we do get a better sense of just how far short of that we fall, and how much more then we fall back on the grace of God, right? How much has God done for me? In a sense, that's an ever-growing picture. That's part of the beauty of, of, of the faith, right? We become more and more aware of how much God must love us in order for that to happen. So that's a good thing. Let's take a quick look at chapter 14 on justification. Look, made acceptable to God, it says right there on page 69. At this point, I would normally ask, what is justification? And I'll bet if we went around the room um, and asked each one of you to write it down, we'd have like you know 30 different answers. It's one of those sort of Christian words that I've found, at least over the years, a lot of people don't really understand very well. On one level, it's quite simple. What does it mean to, to be justified? Literally, as the word itself implies, to be declared righteous or just or right in some sense. What does that mean for us in terms of our relationship to God and our, and our, and our faith? That's really, I think that's the operative point here, and that's what, what Jeffrey's getting at in this chapter. So turn with me to page 69. Let's look at this together for a few moments. Under the, the little, uh, the first uh, subtitle, there's a first subheading, takes away condemnation. Okay, sometimes they're simplistic uh, subtitles, I understand that. But look at the first sentence. I just need your help with this, if you can help me understand. Justification is the opposite of condemnation. What is Jeffrey saying? What does he mean? Justification is the opposite of condemnation. Yeah, it's, it's actually quite simple, really. It's actually not that complicated. Uh, who typically does the condemning? 
we, in a way, we kind of condemn ourselves, right? Um, but what is, what is the role that Satan plays in Scripture throughout most of it? Um, he's the accuser. He's the one who's often saying, that one's bad, right? Uh, now, ultimately, God's wrath will fall there, right? There is a time of judgment that is coming. Um, but condemnation is a, is a serious problem for us. Jamie's exactly right. You turn that upside down, declared wrong, declared right, declared righteous. So skip ahead a few sentences here. I want to keep on going in this paragraph because this is the paragraph's all sorts of crazy stuff here. He then goes on to say, in justification, about halfway through, in justification, God the judge pronounces us acquitted of the charge. He does not say we are innocent because we are not, but we are acquitted. That term acquitted, where do you sometimes hear that? Yeah, often in our culture, at least, we associate that with the courtroom, right? So, and actually, this is a good use of the word. It's actually very accurate. Uh, there's a difference. And in our legal system, you notice when the judge polls the jury and asks them, you know, what's, what's your judgment on the charge? You know, how, do you, how does the jury find? We find the defendant not guilty. You notice what they don't say, we find him innocent. So the assumption is we can't really know with certainty anybody's innocent. We can just sort of believe or not believe. We can reliably, reasonably conclude or doubt that he's guilty of something. It, it's, it's part of that. It's sort of the, it's the flip side of that underlying assumption that, that all of the accused are innocent until proven guilty. Now, we might not be able to prove you're guilty, doesn't mean you aren't, right? But failure to prove guilt does not mean innocence. It just means failure to prove guilt. So we don't declare a person innocent. We declare him not guilty. And what do we call that? We call that an acquittal. Acquittal literally means, it, it does not mean to declare innocent. It means to find no guilt. Again, not the same thing. And that this difference is actually critically important for us. Uh, because... When we are justified, made or declared righteous, it's not because we've been so good, right? So justification is the opposite of condemnation, to be declared or made righteous. Notice none of that says you did lots of good works. You know, you filled up your checking account of righteousness up to the brim, and now you're good to go because you earned yourself, you know, a ticket to heaven. That's not what, that's not what, that's not what any of this says. It's certainly not what Scripture says, Right? The justification is based on an acquittal, not because you're innocent, but because righteousness has been imputed to you. So go to the bottom of this page. This gets to the, this is, this, these are, these are important questions. I want to tell me what you think. Last two sentences on the page. It says, how can God do this? If we are guilty, how can he pronounce us to be pardoned? Does he bend the law? Turning over to the next page. Does he turn a blind eye to our sin? Does he forget all the declarations of judgment he has made upon us? How does God do this? I turn it on you now because, look, you're the audience. What are you going to do? You can't get out yet. Does, does God just sort of ah, forget the sin? I'm not worried about it. Go ahead do what you want. How does he do it? Well, the, the judgment is still paid. So it's not that he is at one point just and holy and then he's not anymore. It's right, right. 
made in our place, so therefore he remains holy and our charges are guilty. Yes. I mean, let's be honest. Our sins haven't just vanished. God hasn't pretended they aren't there. Guilt is still there, right? I mean, there's still sins were committed. That sounds like a Clinton administration kind of thing. Mistakes were made. It's a literal quote, but I just don't mean to throw in the politics. But uh, <laughs> turn to Romans chapter 3. If you're too young to remember the Clinton administration, good for you. Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 21. This is what Paul writes on the same subject now. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Jeffrey actually uses this verse, this set of verses, and it takes a page or two to kind of work all the way through this. This is really kind of a rich uh, little paragraph here from from, uh, Paul's letter to the Romans. So let's take just a few moments to look at that together because I think it's very insightful for us. So starting at the the beginning in verse 21, it's 21 through 26. You see this here, uh, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. What is righteousness apart from the law? Doesn't that sound curious? I mean, the more you think about it. Maybe, can I flip that around? What would righteousness according to the law be? You would have to be perfection, right? You'd have to lead a life completely sinless. That is to say, you'd have to obey the law in every aspect all the time. That would be righteousness according to the law, right? Now, how many of you have, have met that standard so far? Anybody? Anybody? No hands. Look at that. Duncan alluded to, you know, for a while, Adam and Eve had that going. Um, Jesus Christ, entire lifetime, actually. But it's a sh- relatively short list of people who can say, um, even for a little while, kept that standard. So it's not righteousness according to the law that we're talking about here. So what would righteousness apart from the law be for us? Maybe if I say this, this is almost like giving away. I feel embarrassed. Um, Whose righteousness are we talking about? It is Jesus' righteousness that you'll be judged by. And that, for you, is apart from the law. You didn't keep the law, and yet you're righteous. Where's that come from? It comes from the tremendous vat of righteousness that Jesus brings. Exactly, exactly. Now, now that's important, right? I mean, there's, there's, that distinction is critical. But do you want to stand before God declared righteous or exactly as you are without that? This, this is an easy choice to make, right? So, so yes, it's not based on my good works. Frankly, it's based on Jesus' good works. And I am clothed, a great word from Scripture, in that. Actually, we'll talk about that here in just a moment. 
So moving ahead, that's verse 21. Moving on to verse 22. Where does this come from? Look at what he says here. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. So there's this linkage of this righteousness apart from the law. It comes through faith in Jesus Christ. So it's not just sort of a, you know, it's not just sort of a voluntary act. Would I like some of that or not? Let me think, do I want this, this, this righteousness? No, it only comes as a consequence of that faith. And so moving along here, what does, uh, so this, if you want to follow along, this is pages 70 and 71 in, in, um, in Jeffrey's book here. But he keeps moving us through. So it comes to us, it, it's, it's apart from the law. It comes to us through faith. Look what he says here regarding verse 24. Look at this again. Uh, verse 24, are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. So notice it's a product, he says, of God's grace. We've talked about grace before. But notice, grace is not us. Grace is a gift. Grace is something that God does. Again, it's hard to, I don't know how anybody ever reads the book of Romans and comes out of that as an Arminian. I just have no idea how that works. But, but here, verse 24 is like another classic example of God being the motivator, God being the initiator. It is through this, um, it's, it's justified by His grace. And this is, it's a gift. It's something that He gives. And then finally, uh, he takes us to verses 24 and 25. Um, 25, picking up where we left off. Whom God, this is Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. It's hard to say the word propitiation. I suppose it's better if we were actually, you know, Romans. To be received by faith. So, so Jeffrey says here, it's a result of something that Christ has done. And what has he done? He's, he's redeemed us. And he's been our propitiation. What's, I hate to say this out loud. What's propitiation mean? It's actually kind of a... Say it again. Yeah, literally means a sacrifice, right? So you're, you're making a sacrifice. In this case, it's satisfying the wrath of God. So Christ becomes that sacrifice on our behalf. So it's redemption, a payment, right, as we see from the last chapter. But particularly, it's a payment in the form of a sacrifice, and it's Christ's sacrifice. So these, these verses here really do paint this picture of justification, as Jeffrey kind of works, our, works, works it through for us. Look with me. Um, I'm going to just jump around a couple of spots here. You don't even have to turn if you don't want to. Listen carefully. Uh, compare this then. So in Philippians chapter 3, uh, I'm going to pick up halfway through verse 8. This is what Paul says on the same subject then. He says, For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ... Here's the important part. And be found in him not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. So Paul's saying exactly sort of another way of saying what we're just talking about here. Where does that righteousness come from? It's not mine. It's not the acts of the law. I haven't done a bunch of good things. It is Christ's. So that's Paul repeating himself, right? So he wrote both of these letters. So maybe just Paul's wrong and he's not getting this right. Jump with me all the way back to Isaiah. Uh, this is the Old Testament now, right? So surely, if anybody's going to contradict Paul, it would have to be Isaiah, right? Isaiah 61, verse 10. You probably know this verse pretty well. This is what Isaiah says on the matter. I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My, sh- my soul shall exalt in my God. For, listen to what he says, he has clothed me in the garments of salvation. He has covered me with a robe of righteousness. As a bridegroom decks himself like a priest with a beautiful headdress and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. What has Christ done for us? 
He is clothed. It's exactly the same thing that Paul says. It's not mine. God put it on me. He's covered me in it. He has taken what wasn't me and wrapped me in something beautiful that, that he, can then, he can then live with. He can, he's a perfectly righteous God. He can't have us there steeped in sin, but he doesn't have to. We're clothed in the righteousness of Christ. So just to follow through here on page 71, we'll wrap this up here. Uh, that paragraph in the middle of the page, the end of it, he says, on the grounds of what Jesus, this is Jeffrey writing now, on the grounds of what Jesus has done, God is able to justify guilty sinners. He is acting in a perfectly lawful way because our sins have been dealt with according to divine law. So the price is paid. He's not ignoring sin, right? This, this is the question that was on the table before. Does he just pretend it didn't happen? Does he just look the other way? No. It is fully accounted for. It is dealt with and dealt with according to the law. What's the price? The price is death. Is that death paid? It most certainly is. God can't tolerate unrighteousness. So what about us? We're clothed in righteousness and presented to him like a bride to her bridegroom. That's a, it's a beautiful thing. Any last, we're, we're just about near the end of our time here, but any, any last questions or comments here on chapter 14 and this notion of justification? Yeah, that's, so that, yeah that, that, that clothing him in the clean robes is clearly tied to the Savior, right? It's not something that Zechariah doesn't do it himself, right? It's, yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah, that's beautiful. Let's, uh, we're, we're actually a couple minutes past our time. Let's, uh, let's stop here. Let's take a, a moment to pray together, though, as we wrap up this evening. If you'll bow your heads with me. Heavenly Father, we are humbled tonight as we think about these important concepts of redemption and justification and how you literally sent your Son to be the payment for our sin. And despite the fact that we are guilty, that you clothe us in that perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. And when you behold us, you see his righteousness. Lord, that is a, that is a, a notion beyond comprehension for us, and yet we are grateful that that is the kind of God you are and that we can leave here confident in the knowledge that you do not look upon us as wicked, guilty, corrupt. You look upon us just as you would your own son. We are adopted into your family. We are grateful for that. And we ask, Lord, that we would be uh, able and willing to show that gratitude, that we would take that uh, that gratitude that we have and use that as a as the love for Christ as the foundation for uh, the good works that the book of James calls us to. We ask, Lord, that as we uh, leave this place here tonight that you would uh, send us out with your blessing and call us again together soon. We ask it in Jesus' name.